Welcome to the Julie Salant Podcast, the place to reconnect to your heart and live your soul purpose. This is where you will find inspiring information on how to reconnect to your heart, get into mind-body-spirit alignment, and step into your personal power. Together, we will hear messages from the sacred animal kingdom, discuss how to reframe success that works best for you, and learn to step into divine flow, allowing you to do what your soul came here to do. Thank you for being here. And now, let's tune in to today's show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of my podcast. Today, I am thrilled to have Thomas S. Russo Jr. on as my guest. He is an author, a CEO, a speaker, an adjunct professor, a coach, and consultant. And he currently serves as the town manager in Newton, New Jersey. He has over 13 years of dedicated service to the county seat of Sussex County, New Jersey, with over 22 years of experience in municipal and county government. But what we talk about is something super interesting. Um, he's basically a recovering politician's guide to Christian living. Uh, he shares stories about his spiritual journey, how giving up New Jersey politics and becoming a born-again Christian turned his world upside down for the better. He's faced quite a few challenges in life, and his amazing books, There's No Politics in Heaven, uh, is something we discuss thoroughly. So welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. It's Julie Salant. Thank you so much for being here. I am super excited today. I have... Thomas Russo here. He is actually someone that I met recently. He has an amazing book. I'm just going to hold it up because I've started it. There are no politics in heaven. An amazing book and so timely right now, my friend, <laughs> for the time that we're talking about. I don't know when you'll see this, but we're going towards November. Um, and as I mentioned, he's an author, a CEO, a speaker, adjunct professor, a coach, a consultant, town manager in New, New Jersey. He He's got many years of dedicated service, but what's more interesting to me is his personal and compelling story. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. No, thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I would love it if you would start our listeners at maybe, you, you just have so much that you can speak on, but I know you have overcome so many obstacles and challenges starting from when you were young with bullying and then, you know, making progress throughout your career. And I know right now so many people are, we talked about our faith before in God yeah. and how that's helped us. And I know right now so many people are awakening. And I thought maybe right. you could start where you feel comfortable in terms of, I'd just like to give, maybe you could just give a quick word to them before we dive in deep into your background as to if they feel like things are falling apart right now, so many of us do, that are just awakening. What advice would you give them? Sure. I, you know, I appreciate the opportunity. I think the reality is... You know, there's two kinds of people. There are people that we see in daily life that are struggling from addiction or emotional issues or mental health issues, right? And we, we see them, we encounter them. They could be family members. Um, and then there are people, and you know, it's, it's kind of, um, you can tell that they're going through something difficult. And then I think there's the rest of us that, and I used to fall into this category where um, everything on the facade was perfect everything looked fine from the outside, but emotionally, spiritually, I was suffering quietly. And that's the type of person I was. I just think a lot of people, especially now going through a pandemic, going through political and civil upheaval in terms of society, 
um, I think a lot of people are suffering in silence. And when I wrote this book some time ago and published it recently, um, I wanted to share my story because I was the one who had the successful career, had the successful marriage, the affluent lifestyle, whatever that means. But, um, but inside there was an emptiness, there was loneliness, there was anxiety and depression, there was thoughts of suicide. So, you know, all that glitters wasn't really gold. And I just got to the point where once I, you know, went through my journey of faith and perseverance that I wanted to share my story because I wanted to help at least one other person. Um, and I hope that, you know, publishing the book and, you know, speaking to people like you and doing other podcasts and consulting and the things that kind of came from the book, um, you know, the beauty from the ashes. Um, I think I've been able to impact the lives of other people in a way that my political career never really could do. And that's what um, the book is about. I resonate with that so much because I was the same person. I had the great job at a big insurance company working for an SVP, you know, making the money and, you know, the top floor office and all that stuff. But I was miserable every day. And I felt like I wasn't using my gifts and I felt like I was dying a little inside. And I think so many of us try to be strong and keep charging on, but inside there has to come a point where you say, you know, I'm so unhappy and I'm, I'm miserable. And how can I fix this? Tell me a little bit about your journey and, and how you made some of these amazing changes that you did in overcoming these obstacles. So I'm going to take you back to the womb. Um, so <laughs> and this is, you know, this is just how the story goes. So, you know, born in 1972 to a lower, lower middle-class family in New Jersey. Um, for some reason, very early on in childhood, I had the political bug. So my joke is and was that when other kids were doing coloring books, I was coloring electoral college maps as a kid. <laughs> not exactly normal, but you know, you know, I'm, you know, is Florida a red state or a blue state? Is it a purple state? Like, you know, these are the things that occupied my childhood. Um, and you know, that's just the truth. So for some reason that was just the bug. That was the interest. Um, so, you know, I was a Reagan baby. I was a Tom Kane baby when he was governor of New Jersey. And I just admired individuals that could motivate people with their public speaking and, you know, people that were in public service. The challenge that I had growing up was that when we moved from Lincoln Park, New Jersey to Parsippany, where I spent most of my years, um, I suffered from obesity, you know, not uncommon, especially nowadays. And, um, you know, I spent most of my childhood being ridiculed and made fun of and picked on and, you know, the, the usual routine of things that happen to other people. And, you know, pun intended, it really weighed, it weighed heavily on me, both in terms of the weight and also emotionally, right? Mm -hmm. Am I good? Am I good enough? Am I worthy? Uh, sense of a belonging? Like what group do I fit in, right? Because at in childhood, we always seem to fall into some category or group. You're in this group or that group smart kids, athletic kids, or whatever. Um, so I, I just had a lot of emotional challenges that I internalized growing up. And it wasn't until senior year of high school, and I'm jumping around in the story, but senior year of high school, I decided to starve myself so I could lose the weight because I didn't know what else to do. So between junior year and high school, I lost about 100 pounds, and it was a very rapid 
transformation and it kind of happened from the end of one year into the beginning of the next so that when I started um, excuse me between sophomore junior year so when I started my junior year of high school like people didn't even recognize me wow um and it made me very happy and it made me very sad because the joy was oh wow you know they really like me now right you know like I'm accepted now right because I fit their mold right and the sadness was well I really didn't change who I was, right? My values didn't change. My sense of humor didn't change. My intelligence didn't change. I was always a gifted student academically. So I, you know, I was a smart student. Um, but the sadness was, okay, if you, if you give the world what they want, they'll accept you and they'll like you. And so then the challenge became, you know, I went to, away to college and then I came home and finished up at Rutgers. And then I, I went to graduate school because um, I didn't want to be another lawyer in politics. And probably the worst thing somebody could do with self-esteem issues was to go into politics. Mm. Because, and you know, we talk about it with the book, that unfortunately there are a lot of people that use politics to fill that void. Because now you're getting on a stage, and you know, I ran for local office, but I was the youngest ever elected in my town. And you know, my town is one of the largest in New Jersey. So here you are, somebody who just lost weight, just kind of found yourself and your ego and your self-esteem, and then you go into a political career where it's all about, you know, parties and women and donations and lawn signs with your name on it and bumper stickers. Like, talk about an ego trip, right? Mm. I mean, and if, so if you're not grounded in reality, politics can really do something to your head. And um, I spent a lot of years in politics and government. I kind of bounced around with local, you know, with different jobs while I was focusing too much of my time on a political career, right? Or what, you know, I thought it was. Um, and it just, there was just a lot of emptiness and sadness over the years. And it just kind of culminated um, a few years ago when I actually, you know, got remarried and moved to the town that I live in now. And I got involved in politics again. And that, that, was, that was absolutely the worst thing that I could have done because I had closed that chapter um, I had moved on from that part of my life, even though I'm a town manager, I'm an appointed official, so it's not the same as running for office. And I made the mistake of running for office again. And what that did was absolutely bring back all that emotional garbage and all those issues and, and bad decision making and everything. And it was like I just repeated what I did you know, 15 years earlier or whatever it was. And, um, and that's when the anxiety and the depression really got to the point where I just couldn't take it anymore. And I had to decide, did I want to take my life or did I want to change my life? Wow. And it was September of 2015. I was in my office in Newton and I was, you know, crying and I was miserable and I was on the floor and I said, I said, God, I, I don't want to live. I don't want to live my life like this anymore. I, I was being inauthentic. I wasn't happy. And I felt like I was living everybody else's story. You know, what did my parents want for me or my sister, my wife, my kids? And I heard a voice and I will always, I will die believing that that voice was Jesus saying that it was time for me to change. And when I heard that voice, I got up off the ground and I said, First of all, there was there was this tremendous sense of peace that I had that I hadn't had for a long time. And I said to myself, gee, um, you know, faith was really the one thing I never really tried. 
Um, I grew up Catholic, but I can't say that I was a happy Catholic or a practicing Catholic. And, you know, there are, there are many people that are, are Roman Catholic that have a wonderful connection to God and a relationship with God. But I was, I was missing that connection to God personally. I didn't, I didn't feel it. I didn't have it. I couldn't articulate it. Um, and so I decided at that point that I was going to begin a journey without a map. I basically, you know, basically that's how I describe it to people is I didn't know where I was going. Mm. I just knew I had, I had to take one step forward in faith to see where God was going to bring me or what doors he was going to open for me. And that's what began my journey. And, you know, all of those things became the, basically the book and you have the book. The first half of the book is my life story and my journey of faith. And then my second, the second half of the book is really lessons learned because what happened was I decided when, you know, I, I mean, I went to counseling, I did a five day intensive, I changed, uh, became a born again Christian. So, you know, I, I, I blew up my world and I started <laughs> from scratch, right? Yes. Um, because I felt it, I needed to do that. I owed it to myself. I owed it to my family. I needed to be the best version of Tom. And I, I didn't, I no longer needed to be the political Tom like that, that Tom, I didn't want to exist anymore. And um, I began that slow process of changing who you are and what you believe and what you do and who you spend your time with. And I really reassessed everything about my existence. And when I did that, and you know, we'll talk more about it, but when I did that, doors opened up that I never, I never thought of because I, I always thought life was limiting and it turned out that I was the one who had the self-limiting beliefs. It, I'm the one who created the obstacles. I'm the one who separated myself from God. You know, God never left me. I left God, right? When I right. made bad decisions or, or whatever. So, you know, it's kind of an interesting story. And, you know, the title of the book, people get a kick out of, right? There are no politics in heaven. That, that title is as much for the audience as it was for me. Because wow. I, because I needed to tell myself, I put so much of my life and my effort into the fa the fake Tom, right, and the facade of Tom, yeah. who who the voters thought they were getting when they voted for me or they saw my name on a ballot or what or saw me at an event or whatever, and I that was me telling myself, you could put you could you could do all you want in the political world. There's no politics in heaven like that. That that's not going to get you to the promised land, the afterlife, however you would describe it. And then the other part, what's interesting about the title is politics was my drug. So yeah. when people talk about addiction, right, and we talk about opioids, we talk about, and, you know, men have addiction and other people too, men have addiction, you know, it could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be pornography, whatever, whatever takes you away from source energy, God, um, your spirituality, whatever it takes you away from, you know, giving love to people. Um, my drug of choice was politics. Mm -hmm. And that was the drug, that was the hardest thing for me to walk away from a few years ago. And that's the thing that I gave up. And when I gave that up, God, I felt rewarded me with so, so many opportunities. And I said, it's like, I went from a very narrow vision of what my life could be to God opened my eyes to like a high definition HD, why, you know, the biggest TV you could think <laughs> of screen, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what happened when I stepped out in faith. And so, you know, the book is a culmination of all of that, all of the challenges and obstacles I went through and also how I found faith and my purpose 
and now I get to share that story. And you know, the 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 funny thing is, originally the book didn't exist. The book was an outline of a workshop for men. Okay. Because I, I said, okay, I figured, all right, my my audience is male, you know, twenty five to fifty five, you know, whatever it was. And I said, all right, I'm I I want to teach men what I've learned so they can avoid stepping on the landmines, right? Yeah. Because yeah. men are men are good at that. And I showed the outline of the workshop to, you know, people, you know, men and women, but, you know, psychologists, uh, authors, social workers, pastors, education, people in education, government, like, you know, just a wide variety of people that knew me, but, and knew my journey, or at least knew I was going through a journey. And to, to a person, they all said, wow, you know, this is great, but did you ever think about writing a book? everything about writing a book and part of it i think was the practical element of you know a book you can use is your calling card right your book becomes a speaking point or whatever like a business card um but they thought that there was enough material and that the story was interesting enough that people would buy the book or they would find it interesting and they said gee you know there's got to be a reason why to a person everybody's saying the same thing right Mm -hmm. there's there's a you know the universe is hitting me over the head with this and i prayed about it and i said you know what i've never written a book it was on my bucket list of things to do. And I just sat here in front of the computer that one. And I'll never forget that first Saturday with, you know, the cursor blinking at me like, <laughs> all right, now what do I do? I'm staring at the Mac, you know, like I am now. And I'm like, all right, like, how do you, how do you write a book? And the answer was, it's one word at a time, right? It's right. one paragraph at a time. It's one, okay. And the great thing is that the outline of the workshop, you know, chapter for chapter became the outline of the book. So each chapter you see in the book, those were the original titles of my workshop section. Yeah. Cool. Wow. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's because, so cool. Yeah. Because I, I mean, you know, I'm anal retentive, so I kind of think linear. Yeah. And so when I wrote the workshop, I needed to break it down into the different sections. And then that became the logical progression into each chapter, right? You know, the chapter about the, you know, the womb was warm, right? That's, you know, for chapter two and all these other ones, like the titles were already written and the content was really outlined in bullet form. So then I just needed to create the narrative into the book. So, you know, it took me several months of writing the book. My best friend growing up edited the book um, and he, you know, and he knew the journey and he was a part of the story. And that was even a blessing too, to have your your best friend growing up actually write, edit your book on your life. And he's the head of the Annenberg school of journalism. So, you know, he's no slouch. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So that was just, everything just fell into place. The self publishing, you know, the book selling well, the book opening doors, the podcast interviews, and all these became the consulting business. Like it's a great story. And, and what I tell people is, look, I, you know, I know I'm a hard worker. I'm educated, the whole thing, but it's like, look, I, I want to inspire other people to to find their peace and to find their purpose. It doesn't have to be my story, but everybody's got a story. Everybody's got a challenge. And my whole point is if I can do it, you, you can do it too. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hard and some days are going to be uncertain. And honestly, some people in your family aren't going to understand what you're going through. Um, and your spouse might not and your kids might not. But you can't be a great spouse or a great parent or a great author or a town manager if you're not comfortable in your own skin and you're not happy with yourself. Like you can't give away what you don't have. So if you don't have self-love and you don't love yourself, you can't, you can't love everybody else. And, and that's one of the big, biggest lessons I learned was, wow, I, I couldn't look myself in the mirror years ago. 
because right. I, I, I was that inauthentic. And when I start, when I went through this journey, I said, you know what? I like who Tom, you know, I love who Tom Russo is because I defined who I was finally. And I didn't let the world define who I was. And my definition got away from my title and my salary and my position. Like you talked about, you know, the C-suite people, right? Yeah. That's me. Right? Yep. I'm the C-suite guy. But now I'm a man of faith first and foremost. And so I used to have, and we'll talk about the pyramid as a visual, but I used to have the pyramid inverted. I used to have me because I was the center of the world, of course. So me <laughs> and then everybody else or whatever. And then eventually God was in the list somewhere. Right. And then I, my joke is I used to be on the throne until God kicked me off. Because <laughs> that's what God does. It's like, oh, he does. Think, Oof. But I, I needed the kick in the rear end and I needed to get off the throne and I needed to put God first. And when I put God first, everything else fell into place. It's amazing how that, that simple change in my life and that mental shift affected everything else. So I used to spend my life, I bet you like a lot of people now, oh, you know, I, you know, I really need to lose that last 15 pounds. Um, or, um, you know, I wish my job was this or that, or I wish my marriage was this or that, or I wish, you know, like finances, like you name it, like all the things that we worry about and go through. And I realized that if I had God first, all these other things would work themselves out right? instead of the other way around. I always used to put God kind of on the back end of the list. And that's, and I, and unfortunately my results demonstrated that, right. The challenges in a marriage or relationships, the challenges financially or health wise, um, recalibrating the order of who is or what is important gave me the ability and the fortitude to manage those other things. Because I think we make the mistake and I think we do it a lot with children that, you know, life is going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or you're not, or you're not going to face challenges. I mean, look at the pandemic for the last six or seven months. Talk about a challenge. Yeah. Right. It's a challenge that impacted everybody, families, couples, children, businesses, government, elections, um, entertainment, sports, right. You like, you name the segment, there's an impact from COVID and from the pandemic. Yep. So, you know, we gotta, we gotta learn to teach people adaptability and resiliency that the challenges are going to come, but how do you manage them? And I teach people now because it worked for me. I teach people to choose God in all things and to make faith the cornerstone of all their interactions and all their decisions. Um, it makes life a lot easier. It, it makes it fun. And um, I think it really helps set the table for you to persevere because that, like I said, right now people are struggling and we really need to give them hope because yeah, without, hope, exactly. with, without hope, there's nothing. Exactly. Talk to me a little bit about the pushback that you got, because I know that I personally in my life gotten pushback when I've made changes like this. Um, you can have a spouse, you can have children, you can have friends that you've known forever that all of a sudden are like, you know, you're acting a little differently or you, you know, you, something's different. And even if you tell them, sometimes they still are like, well, you know, whatever, they don't want to hear it or they don't really understand it or they don't care to. There's a lot of reactions. What kind of pushback did you get when you changed like that and how did you handle it? Well, the, the challenge is, and you know, I, I, I said, I speak from a Christian worldview, right? Okay. So yeah, there's, there's the people that are out there that make fun of the Christian faith in general. Mm -hmm. um, there are the people that in your life that might want to pull you back into bad behavior. You know, it's the, it's the recovering alcoholic whose friends, you know, well, one drink won't, or, you know, one joint won't, or, you know what I mean? Like right. they, 
they, they're very good at making excuses like, yeah, but you know, it's only one time or it's only an affair one time, or it's only one pornography website or whatever. It's like, you're, sometimes you're surrounded by enablers and people that will justify bad behavior or things because they, they want somebody to hang out with and to do those things with. I hate to say it, but it's like a selfish perspective. And yeah, the challenge becomes having that perseverance and that ability to, and it's hard, having that ability to walk away from a friendship or a relationship or maybe an activity. And yeah, and one of the things I wrote in the book that I learned from some interviews I did with some psychologists and others is there's often a lag time between you making changes and living a different life and how people, especially those closest to you, how they kind of interact with you and think about you. It's almost like, and I talk about it in my book, it's almost like they're reliving an old TV episode and you're already on to the next season. Yes. You know what I mean? I mean, 100%. That's kinda, yes. That's how I describe it. Is, yes. and, you know, I talk about Netflix, right? And it's like, um, and they've done studies about that. People, when people change behaviors and attitudes, sometimes the ones closest to them are the ones that have the slowest time because I hate to say it, but they're holding on to this old narrative of Julie is blank. Right. You know, unkind or whatever. Yeah. You know, Tom is blank. You know, this one's loyal. This one's disloyal. This one's not trustworthy. This one's good with money. And I'd say it, but you know, we label everybody, right? We box them so we can understand who they are. And that's the challenge. And uh, it's not easy to walk away from your old habits and your old friends and your, you know, your, it's like a comfortable blanket. That's like a familiar surrounding. Right. But that's where the faith comes in. It goes, that's where it goes back to, do you, I say, you know, like you can't, you know, trusting God and being a person of faith. And honestly, it could be any faith. I mean, I speak as a Christian, but my sense is this would be a common denominator of other um, religions and spiritual beliefs that if you put that belief system above everything else, um, that there will be people that will mock you. They'll make fun of you. They may run from you. They may avoid you. Um, but to me, that they're coming from a place of misery. And if you, if you practice faith the right way, you're coming from a place of love. And I think the world needs more love and peace because those are the things that people are missing. And I think that's, if you believe from a general spiritual perspective that we all come from God or we all come from source energy, well, we, to me, we were born pure. If, and if God is love, as I believe, then our job as believers is to push out what we were given, right? And I talk about that in the book. Yeah. We, were, we were given love. We were given joy and all these things. That's what we need to push out. If some people are offended by that or some people can't understand that, you wish them well, but that's their journey. Right. And you, have, and you respect where they're at in terms of their faith or their spirituality. All you can do is be an example and say, hey, okay, I respect the fact that you don't like my, you know, being a born-again Christian, but, you know, I have a great marriage. I'm joyous. I'm good with money. I'm good with my health. So I'm not telling you you have to be me or live your life life like me, but I just know the peace that I've been given because of the decisions I've made. So sometimes you just have to be an example and you hope the people you love and, you know, will will catch up to it. A lot of people at work 
kind of noticed a transformation in me because I, I used to be, you know, very quick on decision making. I used to have a chip on my shoulder. I, I had a, a holier than thou attitude because I live in an affluent town and I was an elected official. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, I look back at some of the interactions I had with employees or people in Newton. And I, I knew I, I didn't handle those situations as well as I could have, but I didn't have the knowledge or the wisdom to manage those situations. You know, I think there's, there's some level of, you have to be kind to yourself too. Like, look, it's not about being perfect. It's about making changes and growing incrementally in your relationship with God and um, Christ. So um, yeah, but uh, I would be lying to you if I said that there were, there won't be people that make fun of you. And, you know, I, the quote I have in the book is a quote from Gandhi where it says, I will not let anyone walk through my mind with their dirty feet. I love that quote. That's a good one. But it's true. Like, you know, do you, if it's very easy, if you want to get polluted by the naysayers and the negativity, they're out there. So easy, very, especially now. It's simple. Right. And Turn on the back, TV. <laughs> right. Or, you know, think of like books like the, you know, The Secret and other books Ugh. that talk about the law of attraction. I mean, if you want to be negative and you want to be dour, you know you're going to attract more of the, more of that. But if you're positive and you're upbeat and you're godly, well, guess what? You're going to attract more. It, the choice is yours. Every day we get to make that decision of what you want to attract. Every day. Um, every yep. day. Every morning. Yep. Every morning, every day, and throughout the day. And you know, it's so interesting that in these times, I feel as though so many people are struggling with this and. Um, you, as you said, sometimes you just have to stand tall and just be an example. And I'm the type of person that I don't like somebody, you know, beating my head, you know, with, with their, whatever their story is, even though I'm born again Christian as well. So I realized kind of what you probably realize is just be an example and you can make your own decisions. I'm not going to push my beliefs and thoughts on you, but I'll tell you what's worked for me. And I, I can also tell you where I was. And that's a sharp contrast to where I am today. And the same is true for you. It's a, right. it's a very different story. What I'd love to know what your thoughts are. I'd like to jump into the book, but before we yeah. do, um, I have made it a practice lately to turn off the TV uh, because of politics has uh, just been spewing so much hate. Um, it's just like two kids that are just throwing mud at each other, it feels like. And it's getting to the point where I'm like, you know, I just, I, I, I just don't want that in my life. I don't want to be so negative. So I've actually stopped watching some of the shows. And this includes yeah. Fox. And this includes MSNBC. It doesn't matter what doesn't side matter. of the fence you're on. Right. What doesn't are your matter. thoughts on, on the, today's politics? And then we'll dive into the book. But uh, it's, it's, uh, it's getting kind of crazy out there. I'd love to know what you think because you're on the, you've had the inside track the based on your experience. Yeah, I mean, the problem with today's politics is from a purity perspective, it's not about problem solving. It's about demonizing your opponent enough to motivate your base yes. so that you hope you eke out a win. And this is true on both sides. I'm, I'm sorry. Like there's, it's, yes. it's really, you can't refute it. Um, and I always tell people, because, you know, people sometimes will make the mistake of saying I'm still in politics and I, I go nuts because I'm like, oh, like I go, oh dear God, <laughs> don't, don't wish that on me. Like, what are you nuts? I said, I'm an appointed official. I don't run for office. My name's not on a lawn sign. Like don't even. Um, my job as a town manager, as an appointed official in a nonpartisan town, by the way, is to problem solve. Newton pays me to figure out if this is going on, why it's going on, and how I can make it better. Okay. So to me, you're you should extrapolate that out to the federal level of, 
I don't care if it's taxes. I don't care if it's the environment. I don't like, I don't care what the issue is. The problem is, we, you know, one, we don't have term limits. Sorry, but that, I agree hundred percent. That's, that's part of it. So you have people that made careers out of what was supposed to be a seasonal thing where, you know, citizen legislators would go to Washington, would work on issues and then go back to the farm. Like it wasn't yeah. supposed to be a 40 year career. It yes. wasn't. Um, and that's true at the local level too. So the, you need more people who are willing to put the party garbage aside and just focus on the issues. But here's the problem. It's the party labeling that prevents that from happening. And I always go back to, and I've done this in my speeches, um, when George Washington gave his farewell address. Now we're, now we're going back a ways. He, he, he talked about two things predominantly in his farewell address. And one of them was warning us about foreign entanglements, which he mm -hmm. was right about. Okay you know, nation building and all these other things that haven't worked. And the other was the, 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 the challenges that would be evident because of a two-party political system. The man was right. Wow. So you have people today that are more worried about, well, you're a Republican, so I like you, or you're a Democrat, so I hate you, or vice versa, whatever it is, instead of trying to find that common ground. And I, and let's take it one step further. Let's, and this is, you know, more of a, lightning rod for people civil unrest because of law enforcement yes okay you know i think anybody can reasonably say that you know are there opportunities to make race relations better in the country of course of like, course of course um are 99 percent of the police officers good police officers yeah statistically they are because there's there are there are millions of interactions on a daily basis because you know i think there's half a million um law enforcement officers in the country so every day, think of all the interactions, all the interactions. It's not just traffic stops. It's other types of things. So are there bad apples in law enforcement? Sure. And there are bad apples in the, in the medical world, in the political world, in, in, every, in every field. You know, there's, there's honest plumbers, there's honest electricians, and there's bad ones. The problem is law enforcement, they're put in a power position and they're put in an authority position so that when they make mistakes, people die right that right that's where it goes right so i tell people i said instead of worrying about which lives matter yeah i said how about we we focus on building relationships in communities of color between residents and business owners and law enforcement so that the first interaction they experience with a cop isn't license and registration right and but that's the adaptive challenge and that's the hard work that you have to do on a daily basis i mean what i'm saying is very logical and you understand this yeah. and the people that'll watch this will get it yeah but try to say that intelligently and have a conversation with all the political noise right because it's easier to say black lives matter or blue lives matter and you know what i mean like that's easier yeah. it's a slogan it's a tagline it's sexy it raises money whatever right I look at it from a problem-solving view, like there, you're never going to get a perfect civil society. Like it, it doesn't exist. To me, that's heaven. Like that, you know, right. that's the afterlife. So what can we do to improve things and what can we do to make things better so that human beings, regardless of their color, feel comfortable interacting with people that don't look like them, mm -hmm. regardless of whether they're wearing a uniform and a badge or they're a teacher, or they're a plumber, or they're a, or whatever their profession is. Building that kind of respect, building that kind of love and understanding 
rather than just standing on opposite sides of the street with picket signs saying, I'm bad, I'm good, you're bad. Right, right. No, Which you're is really... never going to solve that. It's never going to be solved. It, you know, and as you said, there in any sector, there's good and bad people, right? So, but I think defunding the police to... doesn't really, doesn't really no, work doesn't for a work. lot of us. No, it, it doesn't work. And, and in reality, it doesn't work. Look at, look at Minneapolis and look at Minnesota. They yes. defunded the police and then things went crazy. And then Bananas. Where are the police? And it's while well, you defund it. Like you can't, you can't have it both ways. You can't criticize the people that you want helping you do things. You need to have a wide tent and you need to be able to have the difficult conversations. And that's how a lot of people describe it. And, you know, I'm, I'm not African-American, but I respect people like, you know, Pastor Tony Evans and others that I read and I listen to. Like, sometimes you have to have those awkward conversations and you got to sit down with people that don't look like you or don't act like you or don't think like you and say, okay, let's start and try to, you know, let's get on the balcony and try to figure out what this thing looks like and what we're trying to solve and figure out, you know, like Simon Sinek talks about, like what the why is. Once you figure out the why, you can figure out the how and the what. So if we want to improve community relations, we want to improve communities of color. We want to improve the, the way the, the police interact with individuals that don't look like them or whatever. All right, let's have those difficult conversations. So you know what? It's actually not defunding the police. It's actually more training. It's more accountability. And you know, I tell people, I said, I, I oversee a police department. So don't listen to people that aren't in the mix and understand what it takes to actually fund the police department or train a police officer or what it costs or what it's like dealing with the union or what it's like dealing with civil service regulations. Like, I know it's not sexy to say those things, but that's the reality of managing a police department. Right. But so talk to people like that and figure out ways that you can build those relationships. Like we just had an event in Newton. It was a fall festival. It's my favorite event that we do. And, you know, we have the vendors. We had a car show, band, the whole thing, DJ. And I always make sure my police department has a table right in the center of that festival. Nice. And they're in uniform. They're giving away the tchotchkes. They're interacting with the kids. And you know what? The kids are the ones in five or 10 years that, God forbid, might have that interaction with the police. And you know, my police officers will actually remember their name or remember that they were in the D.A.R.E. program Mm -hmm. or saw them at the soccer game because, you know, an officer stops by at the soccer game or the town pool during the summer. Like build those relationships and and get people to be comfortable with who you are as an officer or a firefighter or a teacher or whatever the profession is. It just, it just, it breaks down those barriers and I don't care what the color is. It doesn't matter because if you treat people with respect and you treat them like a human being, you have a great opportunity to bring something to their life that they don't have. So yeah, I, but that goes back to the issue politically speaking of, you know, getting new people involved in the process, getting more women and minorities involved in government, having term limits. Um, You have towns and cities and states that have had one party rule for 40, 50 years and they, you know, like Chicago and others, and they don't have results. Right. Well, right, it's the definition of insanity, right? right. Okay, going to keep doing the same thing. The results don't change. People die, or the economy isn't where it should be, et cetera, et cetera. So as much as I don't enjoy politics for me, because, you know, because of what it meant to me personally, I'm still smart enough to understand that we need really good, solid people. And honestly, we need more spiritual people. We need more people that are grounded in something besides ego and the title and the adulation that comes with being an elected official. Yeah. And we need them to put forth their best effort, do good work, one or two terms, and then go. 
and go back and do the things they used to do, like, and have that rotation, have those new ideas. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I ran when I was 24. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to see more 24 year olds get involved. I'd love to see senior citizens that are retired that have infinite amount of wisdom and knowledge because they were in corporate or they were a teacher or they were a police officer or they were, they had a trade, right? They were a mechanic, a plumber, like having that diversity of thought and opinion makes it for, makes for some real interesting conversations. And one thing I'll kind of connect it to is, you know, besides the fact that I teach at two colleges now, I, I actually started a program at Harvard um, and it's the public leadership program through the Kennedy school. And one of the things they talk about in the program is you know, having the ability to take a step back and look at these issues and challenges and they call it, and I mentioned it before, like you go on the balcony and you get kind of that bigger perspective of, you know, who's involved and what are the issues and how can you empower people to solve their problems so that it's not just elected officials dictating what's going on. You, you want to include the community and dialogue and it's a very interesting way to look at problem solving that I, I kind of took for granted all these years. But one of the interesting things about the program is I met people from all over the world through this program. And it really opened my eyes mm-hmm. to look at things from a different lens. And I think that I think that's something that's missing in modern day politics. So the fact that you mentioned that you can't sit there and watch Fox or MSNBC, yeah. join the club. Yeah. I think most of us are in that boat. I might watch it for a little bit each day. I actually flip between all the channels and yeah, it, it's Me funny too. because MSNBC <laughs> will say this, CNN <laughs> might be a little bit different, Fox is over here, yeah. Max is over there. I mean, yep. it's funny. And but, it's the same every day. It's every yeah, single day they're on the same train. So, you know, that's not going to change, but I think how we hold elected officials accountable at the local level, um, how we demand, and you know, I think the reality is you could make the argument on both sides, whether you're a you know, Trump person or not, or whatever, Biden. Um, I think everybody could would enjoy an elevated discourse and a little better tone from yes. all the parties. And I think an emphasis on problem solving where we find common ground instead yes. of saying, you know, you like Social Security and, and this one's going to kill grandma. Right. Or tax cuts are good or bad or the rich people are good or bad. It's like, we just spent all of our time just labeling everybody good, bad, good, bad, good, yeah. bad, instead of saying, all right, well, you know, wh- what's a re- what would a reasonable person say if, you know, if I'm Jeff Bezos and I'm making a hundred billion a year, I think even I as a Republican could make an argument that he should probably pay more in taxes than a school teacher. I would think just right. maybe. Right now, but I'm not saying the guy should have an 80% tax rate. You know what I mean? No. So like, like just make you- it fair make it fair. Like you can have that conversation and then start to winnow it down to what you think might be reasonable, what might be fair, and then move on to the next topic. But it's not easy, but I, it's in a way it's very sad for me because I spent so many, you know, I spent so many years in politics to see what it's become and to see what it does to people. Um, I'd be lying if I said it doesn't give me, it, it doesn't bring great sadness to me about where it stands right now. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast. This is Julie Salante. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to go deeper, there are two ways that you can work with me to get personal one-on-one coaching or to receive an animal reading. Click on the link below to set up a time with me to talk. You can also check out the Spiritual Cafe. That is a membership-based group that I have with a dear friend of mine where we talk live monthly and 
give you information on elevated consciousness, answer your questions, and help you move through life with clarity and conscious decisions. Looking forward to talking with you soon. Thanks, Julie.